Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Barry Lesson, who will be talking about his uh, journey from being a traditionally based uh, uh, addictions treatment counselor, his journey from that point to becoming a harm reductionist. Um, Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book, uh, our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, a Harm, Reduc- a Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. And for more information, go to hamsnetwork.org slash book. Our guest tonight is Barry Lesson. He's waiting for us right now. So, Barry, how are you doing this evening? Great, Ken. Great, Ken. Excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you uh, what what made you uh, decide to move from being a traditional addictions type counselor into more of a harm reduction approach. Is there any specific events that happened that uh, brought you to this point of view? Yes. Uh, before I share that, I wanted to clarify. Um, I'm a I'm a licensed psychologist at the master's level. Back in the day, uh, in Pennsylvania, we could be licensed um, at the master's level. So when you introduced me as Dr. Barry Lesson, I just wanted to clarify that um, I don't have the, you know, a, a PhD, but I've um, so I'm, I'm licensed at that level. So I just wanted to to clarify that. Um, but I am a I'm a licensed psychologist and I'm a certified addictions counselor in private practice in in uh, Fort Washington, PA, which is in suburban Philly, where I work primarily with teens and young adults and their families. And in recent years, I've been profoundly infected by my personal experience with addiction and co-occurring disorder in my family and, and my awareness of the failed public health policies in our country that criminalize and stigmatize addiction problems. And for decades, I experienced the, the pain and the frustration and the difficulty in getting adequate treatment for addiction problems while I worked with one client, one family at a time. And I realize now that it's important to turn my attention to the larger public health environment for those of us who work in addiction treatment are required to work in. Um, my experiences have led to incorporate harm reduction principles and approaches in my work as a result, which focus on the uniqueness of each person's needs, embracing any positive change, and thereby avoiding the stigma and shame-inducing approaches of traditional one-size-all-fits programs for people who are requiring, who are looking for treatment, um, and are required to fit into that mold. Okay, uh, when you were working with a more traditional approach, did you find that uh, it wasn't working for a lot of people? Well, um, one of the experiences that made me, that opened my eyes to what wasn't working was um, in in 2006, our family became aware of an addiction problem with my nephew who kind of hit a wall when he was a junior in college and was failing. And my brother came to me and asked for advice, being the resident addiction counselor in our family. Um, you know, we had been aware of developing issues with him. Uh, he had minor incidences as a teenager, got caught smoking at camp, and got into some minor incidences with with drinking 
spot where police got involved. He was never really arrested. He was underachieving academically and, and, and was in, in treatment, actually, with a psychologist for anxiety and depression in high school. But our heads were pretty much in the sand, which is very common for a lot of families. And, and um, you, know, you know, the idea of not my kid, it's not our family, and, and even myself being um, in the field, uh, I had the same, you know, the same sense of, uh, of denial about that. Uh, so when we became aware of how much his drug use was getting to a point where he was failing out of college, I gave my brother and sister-in-law a crash course in the old-school, tough-love, don't-enable approach, and amazingly, my brother listened. <laughs> um, most of my clients um, who initially are become aware of a problem in their family, it can take them weeks and weeks and months and even years some of them will have to come back to, to begin to get the courage to take some action to do something to address it. Um, but incredibly, I give them a lot of credit. They um, they followed my suggestions and advice to the T, and, and um, they, they recognized that he needed some type of intervention. So um, we, we willingly went to rehab, um, but soon a pattern developed of his being uh, not quote-unquote compliant. He was uh, kicked out of a number of rehabs, uh, was readmitted. Um, he was sent to uh, f- Florida for a longer-term rehab and, and then was sent to a psych hospital and left that hospital AMA and lived out on the street for a while. And then in uh, 2007, we got a call from the hospital about a serious, serious, serious suicide attempt that he had um, that he had tried that um, was not overdose related at all but uh, because when we arrived in Florida the trauma unit that he was in we discovered that he was actively involved in the recovery community he was living in a sober house he was supporting himself with full-time work uh, he after talking to him for about five minutes it was obvious that he was struggling with severe bipolar disorder and he needed psychiatric intervention, urgent mm-hmm. psychiatric intervention. So we actually had to argue with the staff to have him reevaluated and to have him get him safe. And uh, my brother is a physician, and not many people are fortunate enough to have physician as a parent who can who can advocate. And the doctors are more willing to listen to other physicians. And uh, so they were, um, you know. After literally arguing with them, they they got him some medicine. They transferred him to a psychiatric component with the hospital. And uh, there was a very clear sense from us as the family that he wasn't getting the adequate psych- psychiatric care because they viewed him as an addict who who um, was a suicide, you know, a suicide attempt. And it seemed like the sooner they could get him off the floor, the better. They didn't know what to do with him. Um, they had a uh, had an aide in his room because he was on suicide watch. It was very, it was really, um, it was uh, that was their care. It was not really. It was really appalling. Um, when he was transferred to the psych unit, they actually rem- he was in the psych unit for eight months for eight for eight hours. They actually recommended recommended that he go to a rehab. Now again, if you talk to him for ten minutes, he had been sober for six or seven months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, again, I feel like the, psych, the psychiatric staff stereotype and stigma of a typical addict contributed to such a recommendation. It was just they, they didn't really look at what was going on with, with this kid. Um, 
my point is not to disparage the treatment. I mean, he was a very difficult patient because his, his multiple issues. He did have, you know, you know uh, his mental health issue you know, created a lot of noncompliance and and, and and acting out. And they obviously offered and uh, they offered the treatment offered what he needed to figure out how to get and stay sober on his own. And to his credit, he took what he needed and got into early sobriety pretty much on his own. Uh, eventually, we found him care that addressed his substance use and the mental health issues. We were able to bring him back closer to home. And then five years later, we were very proud of him and pleased that he's doing great and, and moving forward in his life. Well, what you've uh, what you've just described is a very common scenario, and it it may still be the uh, most common scenario in the United States today in the treatment industry that um, addiction addiction treatment professionals are taught that addiction is always a primary disease. Um, in spite of all the research we've had on dual diagnosis and co-occurring disorders, um, that still the old school thought is, you know, your your problems are all due to the fact that you're an addict and there's, you know, you don't have mental health disorders. And you're, t I mean, I've been through this treatment myself where I had severe depression and I was drinking a lot because of it. And I was told, no, you're not depressed. You're an alcoholic. You have to do all this, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it was completely not addressed and I, th I think it's it's extremely common still in the US for addictions professionals to say no you don't to deny mental health problems and to say everything is due to addiction right and and uh, it, unfortunately it is very common and what I what I became aware of was that I was unwittingly part of that I mean I'm a psychologist so I focus uh, I treat co-occurring disorders I, I uh, it's something that um uh, you know, it's something that that it's a part of um, it's a part of what I do. But the idea that the addiction has to be treated first, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there has and and there has to be a certain way of treating it, um, was was you know was was where I was coming from. So it, it opened my eyes. And I realized this is not working. I, I mean, I, with my clients, I I was first I was frustrated as I could see this, but it really took a personal experience of 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 seeing how. Um, how widespread it was, and um, you know, here I was, this so-called expert in my family, who I did everything quote by the book, the the old school book, nevertheless. But and, and he's alive now by because he had the resilience and the intelligence to use the tools to get sober. He was lucky because if he if someone didn't find him in time during a suicide attempt, he would have he would have died. And uh, most people don't have the benefit of a personal family coach and healthcare advocate to guide them. So um, I realized this is, uh, and I dealt with this every day for years, and, and now it, it infuriated me to see this is this is uh, you know ground zero of, of what's happening, and I feel like I needed to to do something else um, to, uh, to 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 try to make a change. If I yeah, I think it's hugely important that we uh, teach the mental health practitioners the reality of the issue because they've generally been taught if someone says they have an addiction issue, send them to addiction treatment and have nothing more to do with them 
until they've completed addiction treatment. And, and as you said, even though uh, the the family member you're talking about had been sober for a long time, they they wanted to send him to addiction treatment. Um, I was through this same thing. This was years after I had gone through treatment. And you know, I was uh, I was going to seek help for depression again because you know I was having some difficulties, and I was asked, you know, uh, have you ever been through an addiction treatment program? And I was foolish enough to be honest and answer the truth, yes. And then I was asked, um, have you been abstinent for the past six months? And I said, no, I've been following moderate drinking patterns according to the definitions of the U.S. government. And they said, no, you have to go back to addictions treatment and be abstinent for six months before you can get any help for your depression at all. <laughs> right. And, you know, I was too depressed right. to seek more uh, mental health care at that point in time. Although, uh, fortunately, I... Uh, I got some help from some actually I got some help from the church that I started working at which was you know which gave me a positive atmosphere to be in but you know the whole mental health profession uh, I was not helping me at that point in time right right so um one of the things that um so he had been doing well for two or three years, but, but last summer the, there was a, a lot of publicity about the 40th anniversary of the war on drugs mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. Um, that led me to lift my head out of the sand to learn more about what's going on at the larger level, to look at the public health level, because I, I realized the frustration of finding adequate care for, for, for kids like this and people like this was um, because there was a very limited view on how to approach the problems. Um, so uh, using the power of the Internet and social media, I was able to reach out to some people who were advocates in the field who uh, were kind enough to educate me in the issues uh, involved at the larger, at the macro level, the larger level, and they inspired me with their passion and their personal experience to get involved in, in, the, in a wider, in a larger way. Um, I, I, I met uh, Denise Cullen, who's the founder of the support group Broken No More, Executive Director of GRASP, which are support groups for parents and families of addicts. Uh, GRASP is a network of national groups for families of those who've died uh, of overdose. Uh, People like Gretchen Burns Bergman and Julia Negron and Beth Herman of A New Path, which is also a support advocacy group in Southern California, and Charming Golson, who's the Communications Director for the Committee for Safer Michigan. Um, These are people that um, encourage me to uh, I, 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 I do a lot of writing and I enjoy writing to encourage me to use the skills that I had, my writing skill to speak out more about the issues in various venues um, they encourage me to go to the Drug Policy Alliance convention in the fall where I, I um, the Drug Policy Alliance focuses on trying to change uh, the, the, the drug policy policies in our country to um, be more compassionate and based on science and, and human rights and I saw the incredible diversity of people who were advocating for reform. The, the people, there were people there from all walks of life, all levels of life, people who loved drugs, people who hated drugs, everyone in between. And they were able to put aside their differences to focus on the larger problem of these failed public policies that criminalize and stigmatize addiction. Uh, and that was where I met uh, the more traditional harm reduction folks like Pat Denning and Tom Horvath the Smart Recovery, who further encouraged me to learn, and uh, that was when I realized
realized I have some material here and the energy to, to be able to transfer it into my practice and my work. Okay. I just wanted to mention that uh, we've done previous shows now. We have uh, interviewed Denise Cullen from GRASP. We've also interviewed uh, Pat Denning two times, actually, and we've interviewed Tom Horvath. So if any of our listeners want to go back into the archive and listen to those shows, they're all really good shows, and you know, it was a great privilege for me to be able to interview these people. And um, yeah, so it was. It was uh, that. That was like a transformation because I, I I got out of my clinical head and into it was when I became more of an advocate. And um, and uh, it was something that uh, I wanted to get involved in, in more than just uh, you know just kind of. I feel like I, I could be more um, have, have more do more change from the, from that level and. and and as I met more and more of the advocates, uh, who's, many of the advocates have, have, have their lives that were scarred by addictive illness, either through their own experience or their families, and compounded by the discrimination and the pain of stigma. So I, I created my own judgmental I, – I, I, be, I became more aware of my own judgmental attitudes about addicts and their families when I began. I mean, it sounds – it's like ironic that you know I've had – Clients, I've had a number of clients die, and I've dealt with these families all the time in my office. But looking at the larger picture, looking, uh, meeting the people, and and um, and understanding that this is not just uh, you know just not, not just a clinical issue, it, you know, it gave me a, um, an inspiration to, to continue this work. Um, the idea of me being judgmental, I, I was like, I'm an ex hippie who grew up in the Woodstock generation of peace and love, and I thought, um, you know, I'm. Not, I can't see myself as judgmental. I was trained in Carl Rogers' humanistic psychology. Mm-hmm. He coined the term unconditional positive regard. And that, that was a core of what I embraced as a healing element for my work. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a humanistic psychology therapist. How can I be judgmental? But I realized, there's, I realized that that was uh, um, I kind of internalized the stigma. And I internalized the judgment to... To, to make uh, to kind of narrow my view and kind of keep entrenched in, in a twelve-step approach. Um, so a, a, a part of that came out in in, in, in my work where I, like everyone I would see it would be an addict. I, people would get arrested for DUI. People um, would um, uh, you know get arrested for drug use. Uh, I always think, oh, well, they must have an addiction problem. Uh, and, and if someone comes in my door, through my door, well, you must have an addiction. Um, and if you don't go to a 12-step program, well, you're in denial. So this was ingrained in me, and it's, there's still flavors of that in me. It's like it's like uh, it's like it's hard to escape. Um, but um, as I'm becoming more aware of, as I'm be, as I'm starting to incorporate some of the, the harm reduction practices into my work, it's really um, you know, it's freeing up myself as a therapist. It's it's allowing me to have more options to uh, to be to offer my clients and then to 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 you know, be able to give them options for making some changes rather than you know, a lot of people will come in with 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 their 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 drug use issues and if I didn't have any way to you know if they weren't going to meetings or if they weren't going to stop drinking then I had to send them packing or they they would never come back to see me. So I now have more options to be able to work with them and to, uh, 
to, you know, to start work, using harm reduction as a as a, as a way to help them move forward. Well, there's a huge industry in the United States that's based on stigmatizing uh, drug users, and it's it's called uh, prevention. But you know, almost everything you see that's supposed to be drug prevention is actually just promoting hate for people that use drugs, and it pre- presents them as monsters and you know horrible people. Um, we've all been affected by it, and uh, you know, for for myself. Um, Part of my background when I wanted to learn harm reduction, I wanted to apply harm reduction to alcohol. I knew I was already doing that, but I wanted to get a more in-depth knowledge of harm reduction. So how do you learn harm reduction? Well, for me, the way to do it was to go volunteer at Needle Exchange. Well, you know, this, you know, I was scared to death to go knock on the door and say, you know, can I, can I work here? Uh, uh, but uh, then, you know, after... Six months, uh, yeah. After after a few months, even you know, I volunteered there on and off for about a year, and pretty soon, you know, I realized, you know, these are these are all people just like me, and I like my drug, alcohol, and they like their drug, which might be heroin or cocaine or one of the others. The only difference is that they'll get arrested for using the, for for possessing theirs. Mine is legal to own and legal to buy. Uh, working, I, I work with a lot of kids uh, and young adults, and and uh, when you talk about prevention, uh, you know, it's being able to um, present information to. Uh, information is really important, and the information that's out there uh, is it's hard to sort through because there's usually an agenda or an ideology associated with it. And my parents, the parents of the kids that I work with, come in armed with this information. And it's hard to, um, you know, it's hard to combat that. So, uh, but you know, I've always used education. I've always used, I've always tried to sort out quality education, information that's not informed. So it's not really that much different. But it, it is a challenge because um, um, uh, to, to educate parents. But but parents, once they see that there are other options, and once they can take the focus off of that the drug is the problem, and they can look at the larger picture that this, their, their kids are often have a lot of things that are going well for them. There's a lot of resources. It gives them hope. It gives them ways to communicate with their kids. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a way that, uh, you know, it's, it's a way of shifting prevention around to being more open and, and kind of infusing some, some light into it. Yeah, I think really the way to do prevention is, you know, by by presenting realistic facts you know um you know mar- marijuana is less addictive and less harmful in general than uh, heroin um if you want really harmful drugs uh cigarettes and alcohol are really very harmful um a lot of the harm connected with some of the others are are more due to the fact that they're illegal um so, but you know, giving people, giving kids honest, you know, facts. If you smoke a joint once in a while, it doesn't mean that in you know, in three months you're going to be shooting heroin. That's the right. Right. And what's interesting is that a lot of parents feel like they they when they look at their own drug use or drinking when they were kids, um, they feel like they should never let their kids know because they're going to say, oh, see, you did it, so I can do it. Uh, but kids aren't stupid. Kids know. Kids want need honesty. Kids need 
to know that um, uh, they, you know they, they need the facts. So um, I, I'm finding that when I give parents the opportunity, some of them are, are just too kind of uptight and kind of caught into their own um, their own denial or issues. But but uh, I've I've been pleasantly surprised that when parents eventually ease up and start sharing their experience, um, their you know, it really changes. It, it transforms their relationship with their kids because uh, they, they, it takes the focus off of uh, the, the parents will start talking about you know, why they got high and that, that and how 90% of their parents um, did not develop addiction and did not uh, have other kinds of problems. And even the ones that did, they um, just having that communication with their child is is really important. So it kind of opened that door. To, um, to to having a better relationship with them about this. Absolutely, and the parents can also talk about you know why I decided you know when I started my job at the company that I'm not going to get high anymore, and you know I'm going to limit myself to a couple beers on uh, social occasions, and you know because you know you can talk about. I outgrew smoking marijuana, uh, became, you know, outgrew the binge drinking, now just have one or two at uh, an appropriate occasion, and it's a good model because that's the normal thing, is to mature out of some of these wilder behaviors you do in college or even high school. Right. Right. So I think a lot of the parents come in very fearful, um, and they once once they can, uh, once I can help them alleviate some of their anxieties and realize that that they survived and many of their friends survived, um, that that they can be more open with their kid. Now, now some kids are have some significant um, you know problems, whether there's uh, there's learning problems or there's uh, you know it's clear that the the co-occurring issues, the, the anxiety or depression, need to be addressed. So and they may put them more at risk. Or there's some there are some genetic issues um, or family issues that are going to make it more difficult. So. Um, but it's just being able to look, have them look at the larger picture and take the focus off of the drug is the evil and, um, and uh, you know, learning that and then focusing on some of the, the, the positive aspects of the kid and the resources of the family uh, kind of infuses, infuses some hope, infuses some, um, you know, kind of gets us off the you know, feeling stuck of, uh, you know, Forcing, forcing the kid to go to get some help, and there's just there's, there's just more options in, in the, I'm finding in the harm reduction approach to, to helping them. Well, I think some of the things that Pat Denning said are really hugely important, and uh, for many people, especially with co-occurring disorders, you know, they're using the drug because the drug is working as a coping mechanism. It's not the ideal coping mechanism, and it has some very negative side effects sometimes. But, you know, people are using the drug because it helps them to deal with the depression, the anxiety, whatever. And the way to get them, you know, to use the drug less or stop using is to get them a new coping mechanism. mechanism but right. you can't take away the one that's working before you put a new one in its place. Right, right. And again, with kids, because I work with a lot of kids, uh, when they, when their parents are are willing to talk, uh, to listen to their, to why their kid gets high, they are more able to hear uh, about some anxiety issue or some social issue or some anger issue or some depression. So that's, 
they're not going to come to their parents and say, oh, mom or dad, uh, I'm feeling depressed and I can't sleep because such and such. But if you, um, you know, if you take the pressure, you take the focus off of stop using the drug, stop using the drug, and ask, well, why are you using the drug? And if you develop a comfort level and a safety level, they'll begin to talk about some of those whys. The parents will always say, well, why is he doing, why is he getting high? Is he have self-esteem? Is he angry? Is he this? Well, you know, yelling at him about getting high or forcing him to, to stop, I mean, it, it kind of takes away those opportunities. Okay, we're coming close to the end now, but before we uh, stop, I want to ask you a little bit about, do you think you had, do you think you had any early influences that uh, helped you to become a harm reductionist? Um, well, I I felt like um, in, in terms of my my training, I, I was always kind of uh, like an outlier. I wanted to be a psychologist, but I I didn't see myself fitting into traditional psychologist roles. Uh, I don't like to do testing. I don't like to do um, uh, I don't like to do research. I mean, I I I need I know that uh, um, whatever treatment that 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 uh, I apply needs to be that needs to be researched and needs to be evidence based. So I'm not, um, yeah, I, I I and I enjoy reading research, but it's not something that I wanted to do. Um, so most grad schools require the academic the, the, the research. They required um, certain things that uh, the testing that I just wasn't into. I was able to find a grad school where I can kind of. Uh, I wanted to do clinical work. I wanted to get good clinical training. Um, so I had to kind of go through the side door and find a program. I found an excellent program at Temple University in school psychology where I was able to learn about um, kids and learning about, I did learn about assessment, and I became a, a good, being able to do some good evaluations, but um, it's not what I wanted to do. I, I got the clinical training and internship that I felt like I needed and wanted rather than traditional psychology graduate schools required. Um, I... Um, so it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's going through it. I was very uncertain because I thought I'm trying to develop a career as a, as a psychologist, but I think it it um, it helped me um, trust what I you know what, what worked for me, and, um, and and I think it's helping me now as I make my own transition because I'm kind of using my gut instinct on what works and what doesn't work, and labeling and diagnosing people. It helps professionals to communicate each, with each other on what's going on with the person, but it's, um, you know, it's very limiting and, and uh, kind of stigmatizing. It's like, you know, it's like it feels, gives a sense of, like, powerlessness. Okay, well, um, I'm this, um, I'm, I'm, I'm OD, this kid has ODD, or even with ADHD, it's like, okay, well, it doesn't mean that, that you're stuck. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of strengths and resources in a kid regardless of the label, so um, th th those kinds of things that I've always embraced are making it easier for me to just apply, you know, to, to apply the harm reduction because it's, uh, you know, we go out, we look outside of those things. So. Okay. I'd like to thank you for being our guest tonight, Barry Leffen. Well, I appreciate you having me on and being able to share my experiences and, uh, and it was fun. Okay. Everyone, come back next week when our guest will be Mason Tvert, who um, 
His organization is, is called uh, Marijuana is Safer Than Alcohol, and we will be seeing why he makes that claim next week. So everyone come back and join us next week, and good night. <laughs>